Welcome to Bina, KALW's program featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. In this series, we bring you remarkable artists and thinkers who've come to speak at the JCCSF as part of our Arts and Ideas program. On this encore edition of Bina, our guest is musician, legendary guitarist, and co-founder of The Smiths, Johnny Marr, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2016 to present his autobiography, Set the Boy Free. He's joined in conversation by San Francisco Chronicle pop music critic Edine Vaziri. And now join Jordan Abel at the JCCSF as she introduces Johnny Marr and Edine Vaziri. It is a true honor to introduce Johnny Marr, one of the most influential guitarists and artists of all time. Born in 1960s Manchester to Irish emigrant parents, he knew from an early age that he would be a musician, forming his first band at 13, spending his teenage years in public housing, playing guitar, devouring pop culture, and inventing his own musical style. From forming the Smiths, Electronic, and the Healers, to playing with everyone from Talking Heads to Billy Bragg, the Pretenders to Modest Mouse, the The, and more, Johnny Marr has been making captivating music, the soundtrack of so many of our seminal moments as fans, nearly his whole life. It is an honor to host him to celebrate the release of this terrific memoir, Set the Boy Free, which takes us on a captivating journey through his life and career, from roaming the streets of Manchester to pushing boundaries as the most loved guitarist Britain has ever produced. I'll share this accolade from Iggy Pop, who said of seeing Johnny perform live in person, quote, he was light on his feet like Quicksilver. He caused the band to swing like crazy, and he smoked his cigarette like a star. I've been influenced ever since. Doesn't get much better than that. Johnny is joined tonight by San Francisco Chronicle pop music critic Ideen Vaziri. So let's give it up to welcome Ideen Vaziri and Johnny Marr. Thank you very much. Nice to see you all. Wow. God. All right. Damn. All right. Before you started writing this, did you read all the other biographies? And what was it about that they got wrong that you wanted to correct? The Smith's biographies? Yeah. Um, well, well, straight in. Right. <laughs> Uh, 
Um, well, the, one, one of the, one of the, I didn't read them all. No, I didn't read them all. I've, I sort of one came out. The, the one that's most well known, Morrissey and Ma, came out many, many years ago when I was the band was like um, the band. Hadn't, I don't know, maybe the early nineties or something. That one's a crock. Of it's it's very and it's it's a little irksome. I'll be I'll be honest because it's very well known. And over the years, I've, you know, when I sit down with journalists um, and even some fans, I've, I'd find that I'd be asked things that were I could tell were obviously er- erroneous information, you know. But the thing that I most object to about it is that it's very, very cynical. Um, I don't recognise the people in that book. I mean, some of the events, sure, you know, happen, records happen, and all of that. But there's an there's an atmosphere that then created a culture around the breakup of the band, which is very, very negative. The sure bands, when they break up, and particularly the Smiths break up, was very... God, was straight into it. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's always very difficult, and, um, you know, there's a lot of issues. Um, but, um, you know, I read... I, you know, you read about events, and you read about yourself in, in, in that book. And when it came out, it was very, very... Um, Destructive, I think, to both myself and Morrissey. But I mean, put briefly, um, it's a book that's made a, so much money out of um, the band, um, written seemingly by somebody who really dislikes the two main people in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything's, you know, everything. There's, there's all this manipulation and subterfuge, and, and it's just, it just wasn't wasn't that tells a tiny tiny bit of the story sure things get a little messy but you know there was no love in it and um when i when i wrote my book um i didn't read morrissey's book before you ask um (laughs) no no people think that's but i'll tell you why because i i I just wanted i thought if i'm going to write my life story i want to really write it pure and straight and without any reaction so any, anything really, you know, uh, without any agenda. Or the, you've got, I've got enough of an agenda to write my life story. That's plenty of a of a task. And um, so, I, as you know, as I said, that I'd read the Rogan book years ago when it came out. And you know, I mean, I was 25, 26 when that book came out, and it really was very mean. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff in there that was really untrue, but also paints a really, really unpleasant picture so I was glad to be at a, in just telling the story as it really was accidentally turn some of those things on the head and actually say well guess what in terms of the Smiths it was fantastic for years and years and years Doing, you know yeah I mean of course it was meeting forming writing the early songs, putting the band together, making our early records, writing this song, that song, that song, having all the success, really the friendship, the record after record, all the, everything, even success aside, it was amazing. So um, 30 years later, I'm glad to kind of like make that kind of pretty obvious point because anyone with a brain is going to go, well, duh, these guys were, must have had a good time some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Until you wrote this book, you're pretty good about holding back and just kind of keeping a lot of the details of your life private. So did it take some convincing to have you open up or did it all happen in your head? No, I didn't feel like... Uh, I didn't feel like it was uh, 
intrusive or or too revealing or a process. I just thought I'll just tell people what happened and what kind of person I was and why why I've done what I've done. And I'm starting to interact with people who say, you know, say things like, um, oh, this thing when you talk about the colours of paint in your bike or, um, oh, you know, when you, that story about writing there is a lie or um, I didn't know that's how you joined Modest Mouse. And um, these are starting to come back to me now and um, it's really nice to put all those details out there. I mean, essentially, most of my life, because I started out so young, is my work. So um, my life is really documented. Certainly my adult life is all documented by records and shows and bands. And so there's, there's a whole load of music in there, obviously, and a whole load of reminiscing and recollections that involve a lot of other people, very, very often br- utterly brilliant people like Chrissy Hind and Kirsty McCall. And uh, no, it's, I, just told, I just told the story of being a working musician and how it felt, you know. Did you keep a journal through the years or did you spend a lot of late nights on YouTube trying to remember what happened that one, <laughs> at that one concert or that one night where you were on Top well, of the Pops? Uh, um, well, first, I've got a very good memory. Um, and during the Smiths, just before the Smiths days and, the, and during the Smiths days and a little bit after, my wife Angie kept a journal. So that was really handy. And, um, and now I've just, I've got a very good memory. And I mean, I did, you know, because I did it myself, I, I made sure that, um, you know, I had, to, I had to do a lot of fact checking because you know there's people out there who are going to go, well, you said you wrote that song in Santa Barbara on the na na na. Well, <laughs> actually, uh, well, you know, I've got a bootleg from t- a year and a half before, you know, and you're kind of like, ah. <laughs> And you know that person is like just looking through every line <laughs> to do that and then going on the, on the internet. So, you, you know, Jesus. <laughs> so I, I had to do a lot of fact-checking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's parts of the book where I could actually like smell the room and I felt like I was there because there's so many details. It's amazing, but... Yeah. Um, so there's this part where you're kind of finding your way around the guitar and I think you're playing the birds or something in your room and your sister's blasting Sheik in her room. And that almost explains how you developed your style. That that leave a big impression on you that night? Okay. Um, <laughs> well, what you're talking about is... Um, it sort of, sort of surprises a lot of people, this... Um, so about 14, 15, you know, I'd gone through the glam rock or glitter rock, as it's known in the, in the States, first got into music um, but by liking that band T-Rex. But anyway, so 14, 15, like all my pals, particularly then, maybe even the same now, um, you know, grow my hair a little bit, getting in, just getting into seri- serious music. And I got really into Neil Young. You know, me and my friends really love Neil Young. Um, so my parents, so anyway, my, my, I grew up with my sister. She's uh, 11 months younger than me. And she's, uh, was, so we're known as Irish twins. And from being a little boy, from, that's, a, that's the thing, really. From, from being a little boy, um, we went everywhere together. So I was, I was, I, we were a pair, me and my sister. And she was, luckily, she was a bit of a badass. She was cool. Still is. And um, 
And um, so, and then I had a little brother who was, not, he was a, when I was nine, he was, he was born. So he's a, we, on a Friday and Saturday night, my parents just go out and see bands and, and on a Saturday. So uh, I lived uh, on this huge, the biggest council estate in Europe. The council estate is a, the projects. And um, um, so anyway, when my parents used to go out on a Friday night, or a Saturday night, we'd wait and we'd see the taillights of the car disappear. As soon as he got around the corner, all these kids would just swarm into our house, <laughs> bottles of cider, and, um, which is really nasty stuff. And, <laughs> and um, but anyway, this one night, um, where, which you're referring to, because he, he made a, he had a significant um, influence on me. Um, me and my friends, uh, my sister really liked disco. And, and uh, me and my friends, so we're in my, my room at 15. Got the red light bulb going. And... Old man sitting by the side of the road. <laughs> Got a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of hash. <laughs> and my sister's in, a ne- in the next room, this paper thin council house wall built in the 70s and next door I just say I want your love I want your love don't let it bring you down it's all we got we are family so door opens and my sister she just looks around and she says you guys look like you're having a good time and she goes off dancing off, you know. Right, so she's in there with all her cute friends and having a, it sounded like Studio 54 in there, so. <laughs> so, uh, I, uh, so I went in and I heard, I heard this music, which was, uh, which, which was chic. Um, the first thing I heard was this guitar going. And I thought, that's really beautiful, you know. Um, I thought the changes were really good. And, and so I really got very, very into the Sheik and Nile Rodgers and black music. You're listening to musician, legendary guitarist, and co-founder of The Smiths, Johnny Marr, whose autobiography is Set the Boy Free. He's joined in conversation by San Francisco Chronicle pop music critic Edine Vaziri and Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Just to show you how crazy music is, um, uh, after the Smiths had formed, we'd written like six songs, um, and um, I was at my parents' house one. I went round. I wasn't living there anymore. I, I was. I went round. And I picked up this little guitar, and um, I came up with. And I was sitting around. Came up with this with this disco riff. I was like.
I, I thought, whoa, that's really cool, that's great. I think we should be a disco band. <laughs> <laughs> Angie, was, Angie was looking at me like, yeah, good chords, really? Disco band? And so, but anyway, because I was at my parents, I, I, had, um, I had no way to record it, and I was like, I'm sure there's something in this track, I'm sure. I just heard something romantic in it, something, that's what I was hearing in that disco music, romance, you know, something beautiful, not, not that kind of boring, boring macho rock that was around, it's like something really beautiful in it. So I said, Angie, my girlfriend at the time, I said, you've got to get me around Morris's, I've got no way to record this, he's got a tape recorder. So she had a little, the parents had given her a loan the, the VW Beatles, so I get in the car and she drive off to Morris's and I'm in the car like tr trying not to forget this room. My feet up on the dashboard. <laughs> and um, and um, she, midway through there, in, in the journey, she uh, she's did something she very rarely, she's never done before and has very rarely done since. And she's turned to me and said, make it sound like, make it sound like Iggy. Because she really likes Iggy Pop. <laughs> I've got my sister like sheep. I've got my girlfriend like Ziggy. I'm a people pleaser, what can I say? <laughs> so, um, I was really into Iggy, really into Iggy, so um, I'm in the car, so, it, so I just went... Uh, and... I was playing that and it sounded really, really right. It sounded like, more like a Smith track. So we'd get right at Morris's and I was praying it wasn't the one night of the year when he left the house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he was in and he opened the door and I was serenading like, Moss, Moss! Get a tape machine, get a tape machine. <laughs> but because he understood me and we understood each other very, very well, and he was cool, straight away, I get a tape recorder. He ran and he got his tape recorder and we recorded it. And it became Hand in Glove, but it was the, first, the Smith's first song. Yeah. And then years later, now Rogers and David Bowie work together on Let's Dance, but I did it first. <laughs> But it just shows you kind of the how incredible the um, that's kind of in, when it's what inspiration can do and how um, how disparate influences are because you know I started off playing the disco song ended up writing the, Smith, the Smiths' first single and um, one of the really really fun things about the book was uh, I was really happy to write about those things. You you describe. Uh how difficult it was to find a singer for the Smiths. But you knew you wanted Morrissey because you'd met him after that Patti Smith show and you just yeah. had, a, had an instinct that he was going to be the right guy. So you show up, well, you ask around, you find out where he lives with some degree of difficulty and you show up at his house. Yeah. And then what happened that afternoon that you guys... Well, what do you remember about that first afternoon with Yeah, Morrison? well, how it happened was um, when the band formed, I, I got the manager first. He was just my friend. He's just this guy. He'd never managed a band before, Joe Moss. And he, he, he made me watch the, 
documentary. I was really into Libra and Stoller, the song, the songwriting partnership from the 60s who wrote all the great girls group rec- girl groups records and stuff. Anyway, so he showed me a documentary that was on the night before where one of them goes around to the other one's house and knocks on the door. And um, that was when I made the decision that I could go and approach Morrissey. I wasn't thinking I'd, I'd all get older Morrissey, I'd get old Morrissey for ages. I just, those two things came together at the same time because Morrissey had been in a band with some older guys a few years before and I hadn't really heard anything about him for years. I just thought, all right, I'd gone through different singers and I thought, there's, a, there's, there's that guy, Stephen Morrissey. Um, so I just had to do a bit of detective work the, a few days later and I went back to my neighbourhood and tracked down a guy who would know a guy who would know a guy and I got this piece of paper with his address on. And um, something I've, uh, I've been asked about in the, about the book, about this idea of destiny and fate, um, I was aware when I was writing it that the destiny comes up quite a lot and I was really not, I was trying to not milk it. I was trying to not get too self-conscious about it because it's definitely there in my story. But I didn't want to kind of play on that too much. There's just no, there's no getting around it. When I was given that piece of paper with Morrissey's address on, I looked at the words and they just looked like magic words to me, you know. And I can remember that moment like it was now. Well, mostly because it was a sunny day in Manchester. That was like once every 20 years. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, I, couldn't, I, I, I couldn't not write about that feeling like destiny because ever since I've always remembered that moment really, really clearly. Like, this is the start of a really great band. And, um, you know, because I've, I've been in bands for ages before that. And um, so I got on the bus and, um, well, the guy, who gave me the, the guy who gave me his address, he said, um, uh, he said, there it is, when are you going? I said, now. He said, do you know where it is? I said, no. And um, he said, right, I'll come with you and show you where he lives. So we went up and then I knocked on the door and his sister answered and he answered. And um, you'll have to buy the book to find out what happens next. <laughs> No, seriously, because I'll just be, I'll be here telling this story, I'll take up the whole time and I'll be crying. And <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I remember, you know, I mean, there's, so for example, you know, that story's been told and hijacked by other biographers. You asked about that, your very first question. And um, so me just telling the story of like, of, yeah, I knocked on the door, but one of, one of the first things he says to me is, have you ever been to America? Now, no one ever thought to ask me what we actually talked about. And people... Now, in a couple, of, a couple of the books, the so-called Smith's books, they talk about this really, really important, uh, momentous occasion. But I was there. It, was, it happened to me. <laughs> it happened to me, and I'll tell you exactly what the records were we played. You know, we played Sandy Shaw's Message Understood, and then he said to me, go and play a record, and I went over, and, and um, I looked through, and I pulled out pa- Marvelette's Paperboy, and he said, good choice, and I sp- spun it over and put on You're the One, the B-side because I was that cocky. <laughs> and um, and, and I, I, I talked about Dusty Springfield little by little, and I laid out that I was going to form this group. And, he, you, know, you know, you could say, well, um, what a weird scenario for someone to have a stranger in their bedroom standing there saying, Pitch. it wasn't really pitching, I was just saying, this is what I'm going to do, let's do it. And... Um, 
But we had, you know, we really had an understanding and we really liked each other straight away and we really got it. And he knew that I would at least, I thought I could back it up. At least I was serious about it. And I knew that, uh, yeah, there's no reason for him to be like, oh, you know, what's this, what's this? Because we were the same in that way. We were very, very different personalities. But, you know, if, if I'd had had some, if there'd been a knock on the door one day and I'd opened the door and some cool-looking kid said to me, do you want to join my band? I would have gone, I have my coat on. Well, let, let's do it. So, um, yeah, it was an unusual scenario, but I was really, really glad to write about it. Because to me, I'm just, I'm just telling the story like what happened in my life, but I realised that it's become very um, momentous to a lot of people, so that's a nice thing. And it's uh, incredible how you describe the songs. Just Within a weekend, you'd written uh, three classic songs. You'd written oh, yeah. William and Please, Please and... And how soon is now? And how, yeah, within one weekend you wrote those three songs. Um, yeah, well, did it feel yeah. like to have just all this inspiration coming out of you, so or coming at you so quickly? Well, we were super, super inspired as songwriters, Morrissey and myself. Um, we loved what we were doing. Um, there's a practical aspect to it as well, because when you form a band, if you, you know, it's, it's great if you're a songwriter to, to have a band because you've got the other guys waiting around going, where's the tunes? And um, on this weekend you're talking about when I, on the Saturday I wrote... Um, let's get real quick. I wrote... Um, I already had a chord change. Um, yeah, we, we, had, we had to do... We always had to do a single, you know, um, we had a single coming up and I had this chord change that became William it was really nothing so I had that going and I was like uh, so I had my homework to do The, the rest of the band had gone right well We'll have, we'll have to, you know, the weekend off. And um, Andrew gone up to Manchester, so I, I set about doing that demo. And the song was short, very, very fast and very short. Um, and it was two minutes long and um, two minutes, ten seconds. And um, because I'd done the A-side by the, on the Saturday afternoon, um, I thought, OK, well, if the A-side is very, very short and fast, I'll make the B-side, like, very slow. So, uh, and I thought it should be really, because um, that tune's so upbeat, I thought we needed something slow and really beautiful and a bit sad, you know, so I kind of just got myself in the mode. And, I, 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 you know, I sat on my own, I started thinking about Manchester, I was thinking about my Irish heritage, and I started playing something, as, you know, like this thing that became, please, please, please let me get what I want. Really simple. So, I was playing, I got that done um, in a few hours. (laughs) Yeah. This is Bina, 
KALW series featuring artists and thinkers who've spoken at the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Today's guest is musician, legendary guitarist, and co-founder of The Smiths, Johnny Marr, whose autobiography is Set the Boy Free. He's joined in conversation by San Francisco Chronicle pop music critic Aideen Vaziri. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at KALW.org. At the time, I was just trying to get the tracks together before the guys came back. And, um, and um, so on the, that was, by the Saturday night, I was, I was thinking, right, you know, I've got the next Smith's A-side. William was sounding good on this little port studio, and I've got the B-side. And um, so uh, on the Sunday then, you know, we, need, we always wrote songs in batches of three. We took advantage of, that was because we took advantage of, in the 80s, we, you, we put out 12-inch singles. And because mine and Morris's heroes, Roxy Music, T-Rex, sometimes Debbie Bowie, on their 45s, they would put two songs on the B-side, we got into the habit of doing that. And um, so I had the A-side and the B-side sorted out. And um, so for the extra track, I thought, OK, I've got a fast, upbeat, short one. I've got a slow, sad one for the B-side. So um, I'll just do something kind of un- unusually for us, groove- groovy and long. And um, so I let a joint. And um, there's no way around it. It's a fair cop. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I just started playing. There was a band around out of L.A. Um, called the Gun Club in the early 80s who I really liked. Yeah. And, um, and, and uh, they'd done a version of Run Through the Jungle, the Credence song, and I really liked their version of it. And I thought, OK, well, it'd be kind of weird but kind of cool if the Smiths did something like that. So I just started playing this riff up. And uh, Angie came back from Manchester and she said, I really like that one. (laughs) Getting those years on paper, it seemed like for all the exciting things that were happening, you know, the first time you're on TV, the first time the Smiths go on tour, the band coming together and knocking out four classic albums in five years. After the band broke up, did you seek therapy or anything? How did you get over it? (laughs) This is my therapy. <laughs> Man, you don't get therapy in Manchester. <laughs> Damn, someone might find out. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I, when the band split... Um, 
Yeah, uh, as I say, yeah, I was 23, and, and it was a really big deal in the media, and it was really, really horrible. I mean, any breakup, friendships, relationships, business partnerships, and bands, even, you know, if, you, if you've got not, you know, if you, even if just a little, little band in a rehearsal room in, you know, somewhere, it's painful, you know, breakup of friendships. But when it's so public, and it was really uh, played out in a big way, by, by some of the band as well, I have to say. Um, a big deal was made of it, and um, this big drama. Um, it was really hard to deal with as a, as a kid, and I don't mind saying that now. I mean, all, you know, it was, it was hard for me, and, um, and um, luckily I, I had Angie. It was hard for her too, you know. We had a big breakup in the family, and very, very public, and press got involved, and you can imagine it was really, really ugly. I, I, but at that point, I had no idea what I was going to do. I absolutely did not have any idea. The, the breakup was horrible. It was, it was unavoidable, um, but I didn't know what I was going to do. But amazingly, uh, this incredible cast of characters came into my life. In one, in one case, Matt Johnson from The There came back into my life because I was going to be in The There before the Smiths, before I'd ever met Morrissey. And um, so Matt came back in my life when the Smiths had split. Uh, but the, the most amazing presence that came in straight away when I, I was like, what the hell? So I was sort of reeling um, with Chrissy Hind because the guitar player and the pretenders had quit and um, they were still on the road with, with you two and um, she wanted to continue. And basically, it's an amazing thing because um, everybody knows Chrissy Hind's pretty kick-ass and ballsy and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and also got a very, very big heart. Um, but as an adult now, looking back and seeing that I then became partners musical partners with this very, very strong, amazing woman who, so I'm all bruised, emotionally very bruised um, by the Smiths breakup. And, um, but the person I'm with, two of her bandmates had died. And um, so she really, I'm with someone who would really is going that way. And literally, my, what I'd gone through was not life or death. She, she'd gone through life or death situation with her band and it helped me put my look back in, looking back on it it helped me put my situation in perspective and, and it really does things like that make you really wonder about the idea of the right people showing up in your life at the right time and um, so getting to play with Chrissy was, um, was something else that, that was great so it was a, without sounding too corny about it I was I was, it was a healing, very healing period, but I'm playing, I'm in the guitar player in The Pretenders, so uh, it kind of took my mind off things, you know. You also had a conversation with Paul McCartney around this time, and he, yeah. gave, he gave you some advice as well. Yeah, well, again, you know, I mean, you know, when, when, this, when the band split, I had no idea that, that anyone was going to call, but certainly didn't know Paul McCartney was going to call, so... Um, <laughs> So uh, he, was, he, he was going for a period of like putting different groups together just to play, you know, because he can. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I got a call to go down and, um, and, uh, and that was amazing, as you can imagine. So we're, we're playing all day long, you know, and it was an incredible thing. I'm playing, I saw her standing there and singing the harmonies with him. And he actually said to me, do you know I saw her standing there? I was like, hmm, let me think. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh. And uh, do, you want to sing, do you want to take the harmony on that, this one? It's like... Okay. <laughs> um, the incredible thing about that day, really, was that, that, that Linda was there, and, you know, this, Morrissey and myself were big, big fans of Linda McCartney and because of her vegetarian stance, and she was just great. And um, anyway, so we're playing and playing, and, and um, we take a break, and we're sitting around, and the, I'd just been playing with the talking heads, and Paul and Linda asking me about that. And then Linda, because she was a really sweet and cool person, and she was a Smiths fan, she said, so how's, how's, how did, how's the breakup? How are you feeling? How's it going? You know, just genuinely like a proper person, you know. And it thought went across my mind for a few seconds. I thought, I'm, stand, I'm sat here in the presence of a man, the one man on the planet who is defined by the breakup of his band and his relationship with his incredible songwriting partner. And he's up there. And if anyone can give me some sage-like advice and wisdom, <laughs> it's this man. <laughs> But I was kind of sat there like this. So I just told her, I said, yeah, it's, you know, it's horrible. And told her what happened. And, and um, that it was, you know, it was, it was hurting. And the, the um, media wouldn't, were making a really big deal of it. And the band had fallen out and all of that. And I left a little bit of a pause for him there. And Paul McCartney looked at me and he went, that's bands for you. <laughs> So, as all this is happening, and then electronic later on, and you're getting number one albums, but you still have the shadow of the Smiths over this, so did that make it bittersweet, or had you mentally moved on? Um, no, I don't think it was bittersweet, because... Um, a, I don't know, maybe it's just my personality, but I just... You know, I just think you're really, really lucky to be involved in. If you're known for anything, no matter what, you know, people think, oh, it must be so oppressive and blah, blah, blah. But maybe if I wasn't having a, a success or working with really great people and feeling like I was sort of pioneering and going forward, maybe it would have been too much to bear, you know, that having been... So I was feeling like I had the best job any guitar player's ever had. Being the Smiths, being the, 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 being the Pretenders. I just thought... Uh, this is the best guitar gig I can think of. Do you feel creatively restless? Is there a reason why you haven't settled into another band situation? Never restless now. It's not restless now. It's um, kind of feel uh, I feel lucky, and I feel like uh, I'm just sort of always uh, happy to be searching, really. Mm-hmm. Next thing, um, you know, um, when I was after dismissed because I got known for being in an archetypal four-piece, very, very loved white British guitar band. Um, now that's a real archetype, and it's unusual for to, for a collaborative musician to come out of that. See, when Brian Eno does it, he's known as a creative catalyst. 
when he works with U2 and he works with Coldplay and he works with James and all of these bands, David Bowie and the Talking Heads and everything. But when I do it, because I'm a dark-haired guitar player from England, I'm called a journeyman. <laughs> and, um, but I, I, and, and, I, I, and, but be, before anyone who reads the book will find out that before the Smiths, I, that was my MO, and that's what I did after the Smiths as well. I did that in a few bands before the Smiths, and I've done that ever since. I'm still in the same kind of mindset, and that's what I do now. But it's kind of interesting that uh, after the Smiths playing with the, the who was in the, the for five years and in, in electronic for nine years, and then um, I'm playing with Pet Shop Boys and Beck and all of these people. So to answer your question, it's like now 30 years later, it's not a restlessness. People know that I do that. As I say, the only other people I can think of is maybe Brian Eno and someone else who, who works with all these different people. And I just, I guess I just like the idea of doing it with a guitar, you know, putting the guitar in all these different situations. Hans Zimmer in the orchestra and people like that. And even now I've got my own band. They're smart, they're great players. I write a lot of songs and everything. I'm still playing with different people. <laughs> Even though I've got my own band, I've just done the new record with Blondie, and um, I've got this thing going with this actress, Maxine Peake, and then more film stuff. You're listening to musician, legendary guitarist, and co-founder of The Smiths, Johnny Marr, whose autobiography is Set the Boy Free. He's joined in conversation by San Francisco Chronicle pop music critic Edeen Vaziri and Bina, a series featuring creative voices from the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco. Bina is also available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. It's not, I don't know what it is, it's just whatever was in me at 14, that same thing as I had when I joined Sister Ray, like, this will make me, this will be fun, it, it, this will be, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I think it's going to lead to some interesting music, and that's, that's what happened when I joined Modest Mouse, you know, when I moved to Portland. And uh, it, when I joined Modest Mouse, it was exactly the same as when I, I would join a band in my teenage years, and that felt really, really good to know that I was still working from the same impulse. Uh, to, to find new ambitions when you've, when you've been lucky enough to do all of this stuff. I think just anything, you know, it, when you get to my age, you get to your 50s and, and you, you, you still have new ambitions and new dreams. No matter what your job is or, or what your life situation is, that's... That's a really amazing thing for any person, you know. And in my case, you know, uh, with the band, when we, you know, as I say, the band is so good. I, I was like, hey, right, okay then. Uh, I'd like for us to be one of the best bands, best live bands that anyone can see, you know. Be one of the best live bands in the world. And that appeals to me because it's so juvenile. <laughs> it is, it's so... And... Um, as, as ambitions go, I figured that that was one of the best, and and um, and that's what I'm trying to do. So yeah, I, I I love 
being in the band for that reason because I like playing live now more than I ever, ever did, you know. And I've got, I've got Modest Mouse and the Cribs to thank for that because I just really learned to love touring and I learned to love the interaction with the audience and I like writing lyrics too, so uh, now it's all good. We're going <laughs> to... Thank you. I'm going to... They're going to ask some questions... All right. Hello, Johnny. Um, just wanted to say thank you very much for everything over the years. I think the spirit of your playing, um, I can't quite ever touch on one word that defines it or one sentiment, but it always brings out so much, and I think everyone in the room will share that. So I just wanted to see if you could finish off by maybe just sharing a little bit, you know, without being a bit too flowery maybe, of where you really kind of go when you're in that spot where, whether it's the three songs over the weekend or yeah. maybe over a cup of tea, like, where do you kind of go and can you maybe express that for us a little bit? Well, thank you. Well, that's it, really, thank you. I appreciate what you said, that's great. Um, well, um, I think, A, I really have learned over the years with, any, with the artistic process that it's great to... to to uh, accept mystery I think that's so great you know and um, you know because songwriters and you know people who write scripts or creative people particularly that you know you're always trying to go how how, how did I do that how did I do that and you you know you you sort of go through quite a lot of turmoil trying to come up with stuff that's genius or brilliant or better than your last thing not necessarily a hit just something that really hits you you know what I mean and uh, after all these years, uh, there's a big, big chunk of it that is a complete mystery that I've actually kind of resigned myself to go, well, that's okay. But um, my favourite ever song that I'm most proud of that the Smiths ever did was is on the last record uh, called um, Last Night I Dreamt Somebody Loved Me. And, um, um, and, um, uh, and it's really, really emotional. And... Um, I was sat on the back of a coach, a, t- a tour bus, on, on the British tour um, in 86, and I was feeling pretty lonely. I was, just, just, I was a 22-year-old guy, and, just, and I don't know why, I just feeling very emotional, you know. I'm a pretty outgoing fella, but, you know, I do have my moments, and, and I just I had, a, I had a guitar going, OK? So... So that, um, I just felt that way. I felt that way. And um, when we did, uh, in a similar vein, uh, when we did uh, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, I felt that way too, and it's very emotional. The, uh... I was just kind of in this. Wasn't it? Just I felt it felt very beautiful to me, and 
Um, so it was extreme emotion. And, um, but when I was doing... I need, to, I need to stand up, really, to be able to play these wrists properly, because they, <laughs> they, they are pretty tricky. But, um, so I'm trying to answer your question, because the guy who played... Uh, yeah. um, uh, and... Uh, has a lot of emotions. Uh, and I'm glad to say it sounds kind of eccentric. Or even... Um, so. I played that because I was so happy. So a lot of the music and the way I play, the stuff that seems to resonate with people is very emotional. And it's either up there or happy to be feeling something down there and that was the way I used to feel as a kid and luckily for me I have some way of channeling it and I've, I've found a way of it being my way of expressing myself and um, I think that's where, why I play the way I do really, it's all about playing the sound of my feelings. I'm probably a bit eccentric. <laughs> Bina is a co-production of the Jewish Community Center of San Francisco and KALW. For more information about programs at the JCCSF, you can visit jccsf.org. Today's guest was musician, legendary guitarist, and co-founder of The Smiths, Johnny Marr, who appeared at the JCCSF in 2016 to present his autobiography, Set the Boy Free. He was joined in conversation by San Francisco Chronicle pop music critic Adine Vaziri. I'm David Kwan, editor and producer of the program. Our theme music is from the album Masada Rock by the Roshanim Trio, and the music you're hearing right now is by John Zorn. Bina is available as a podcast, and you can find it at kalw.org. Thanks for listening.